We are continuing our series, Binge the Bible. This is season one, episode four today. We're going through it. Today we're going to wrap up the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah and Jewish tradition, the books of the law. We're doing Numbers and Deuteronomy today. I'm putting both of them together for us. And Numbers and Deuteronomy today. And if you're just joining us, this series, what we're trying to do is take a look at the Bible from 30,000 feet. We're trying to understand the overall story of the Bible. We feel that the more you understand the Bible and the story of the Bible, the more you understand God, and then the more you understand yourself. And so we want you to be able to see the story. We began in Genesis and what we see from the beginning to the end of the Bible, the whole Bible declares God's character and his nature and his goodness and his justice and his grace. And so uh, in Genesis, we see that he creates humanity and he wants proximity and relationship with us. He wants to be known by us. But in Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Sin is everything that separates us from God, that moves us in opposition to the will of God. Everything that we do that's outside of the boundaries that God gives us. And from there, from Genesis 3, we see just how far into our own depravity humans go, the further they get from the presence of God. The big theme in this Old Testament uh, part of the story that we can see over and over again is that apart from the presence of God, the further we get from the presence of God, the harder it is for us to live in the goodness and in the will of God. And that, that, re that results in a sadness in the people that we see in Genesis all the way up to chapter 11 where the story changes. In chapter 11, we're introduced to a guy named Abram who would become Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to him, a covenant that sets a plan in motion to make his presence among his people for the rest of eternity. As time goes on, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But God hears their cries and he sees their suffering and he sends Moses to deliver them. Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness to a very special place called Mount Sinai. And there, God gives the Ten Commandments and he tells the people to build the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle. And that is where his presence rests, right there among the people. The Ark of the Covenant is different from Noah's Ark. It's a wooden box covered in gold and in the middle of it is a spot called the Mercy Seat. And in the Mercy Seat, the presence of God rests. And the tabernacle is a portable church. They built a portable church because real estate was just crazy in the desert where they are at the time. So God hasn't put this temple together uh, that is easy to move. And in it, there are different sections. There is a place where the people can go to get near to the presence of God. And that's where sacrifices are made. We learned about that in Leviticus last week. The system of sacrifices answers the question of how can an unholy people approach a holy God. We talked about holiness last week. Holiness means to be set apart. And God is so good that he is completely set apart from the troubles of humanity. 
but he still desires to be close to us. He wants to be known by us. He wants to give us his presence. He wants us to be in his presence. And so Leviticus tells us how we can get close to him. And so the sacrifice happens in the first part of the tabernacle. And then there's parts where only priests can go. And then there's parts where only the high priest can go. And uh, the book of Leviticus breaks all of that down for us, helps us understand it. And it helps us see again that the closer we get to the presence of God, the better our life can be. Today, we're looking at the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, we're putting these books together. I'll explain it in a minute. Uh, it's because I just did not have any plans for the rest of the day. And I just thought, let's go for it, man. The people want a two-hour church service anyways. And so, um, no, it's because Deuteronomy is called the book of remembrance. And, it, it's, and I'll explain it in a few minutes. But the book of remembrance is about interpreting the law for a new generation. In other words, it is the book of Leviticus 2.0 with a little bit of story in there. And so we'll get to that in a few minutes. First, I want to talk about Numbers, the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is a great book. It has some incredible narrative in it. It's another one of those where if you're doing a Bible reading plan or you're just trying to read through the Bible, you get to the book of Numbers and you might just say, I ain't doing this. There's a whole lot of numbers in the book of Numbers, it turns out. There's a lot of genealogy and numbers and uh, there is all kinds of a census and all that. My favorite memory verse is in the book of Numbers, okay? Numbers 31, verse 33. And we can all memorize this together today. 72,000 cattle. It's the whole verse. Isn't that great? 72,000 cattle. My dad used to give me a silver dollar every time I memorized a verse, so I found all of these. All of them. 72,000 cattle. That's a lot of cattle. I don't know if you know anything about cattle. That is a lot of cattle. There are 35,000 cattle at the King Ranch in Texas, which is the biggest ranch in the U.S. This is twice that. So anyways, Numbers has all this stuff and it has all these different numbers in it because of a census that takes place at this time. Uh, in the book of Numbers, we see the blessing of obedience and we see the consequences of disobedience. It's crucial story that happens within the wilderness period of the Israel people. In fact, the Hebrew name for numbers isn't numbers. It's translated in the wilderness. This is the story of the people in the wilderness. Uh, the people are at the base of Mount Sinai for the beginning of this story in the wilderness, waiting on the presence of God to move. And so Let's look at it today. It's separated into four parts. Let's get into it. Number one is that Israel is numbered and arranged. Israel is numbered and arranged. Numbers opens up with a call for a census. Uh, today, we use a census to learn about demographic profiles, to help us decide how to spend government money, social programs, and things like that. It helps us understand how cities are growing. It's about the collection of data for data's sake, and then we use it for a lot of different things. In ancient times, a census really only served one purpose, and that was to know how big your army was. It was about building an army and preparing for war. God tells them to take a census because as this nation comes together, they're getting ready to go and take territory. In these books, we see a lot of reference to the promised land. And the promised land is something we, we've heard that term, we're familiar with it. But as the people of Israel are in the desert talking about the promised land, the promised land is not an empty valley waiting for them to move into it. The promised land is occupied. 
There are people living there. There are walled cities. And God is telling them that he will give them that land, but that they are going to have to take it. Oftentimes, the promises of God come with work that we're going to have to do on our part. And so God is giving them this uh, promised land, but he's telling them that you're going to have to raise up an army in order to go and take it. And so the book of Numbers opens with a census for that purpose. Numbers 1-2 says, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. God is preparing to lead them into the promised land. In total, they find that there are 603,550 men. They have a pretty big army, age 20 and up. By this number, we estimate that there were about two and a half million people in the desert camped out next to Mount Sinai. That is a lot of people. That is three times the population of Charlotte. That is a lot of people camping out in this area here in the desert. So the second thing that we see in this book of Numbers is Israel on the move. Israel on the move. The people moved from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai back in Exodus. And they've been there for over a year waiting on the presence of God. If you remember, back in Exodus, after the people started worshiping an idol, God told Moses to take the people on without him. But Moses said he would rather stay in the desert forever than go on without the presence of God. So God tells them to build the Ark of the Covenant, to build the tabernacle, and his presence comes down in the form of a cloud and rests on the Ark in the tabernacle, and it just stays there while the people wait in the desert. One day, at long last, after more than a year, the cloud lifts and the people move. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down on the wilderness of Paran and they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So in an organized fashion, all these people begin moving across the desert of the Sinai Peninsula, heading up towards the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel. I wish I would have thought ahead of time and done a map back here and had like the red line from Indiana Jones. Go bum, ba, bum, 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 bum. And so if they come from the Red Sea, which is up here, if you can see my map, here's Africa, here's Egypt, here's the Red Sea, and then they come down and then the Sinai Peninsula is like this. They're down here at Mount Sinai. They're making their way up towards the Jordan River and the land of Canaan. They're doing it great. Everybody's super excited. They're lighthearted. They're singing hiking songs. They're happy. They're grateful to get there. That is not how it goes down even remotely because they're people and people are complicated and people are rebellious and people don't always like to walk long distances. Numbers chapter 11 verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. I love to hike. I love to hike. I've always loved to hike. I love it. I love to be out in the woods surrounded by tree. I love a good tree. I, every time I go for a hike, you will hear me say, did you see that tree? 
That was a great tree. Sometimes I'll stop and stare at a tree for a couple of minutes because it's such a good tree. You guys wouldn't believe this tree I saw last weekend. It was so nice. Anyways, I love to hike. I like the distance. I like to go you know, I like to go miles and miles. I like to see the terrain change, the, the biomes shift based on how high or low you are. I love the feeling at the end of a long hike. I like to, I like to just feel exhausted from it. I love all these things about hiking. My five-year-old, on the other hand, does not share my enthusiasm. As soon as we get out and start going, we get out of the car and immediately her legs are tired. They are, Daddy, my legs are tired. Girl, you have not even, you walked further to get in the car in the driveway. My legs are tired. Will you carry me? She's 50 pounds. I am not that strong. I cannot carry her the distance of this hike. She's hungry. We're having every snack. Every snack that she saw me pack in the kitchen before we left, she wants it immediately as soon as we get on the trail. She saw a bug. She's got to check this bug out for the next 45 minutes. Do not try to make her leave this bug. It is her friend and its name is Ralphie. Let's go. Let's move it. And then uh, I don't know how many times we've been hiking up the trail and she says to me, Daddy, can we go back to the truck and get my stroller? I'm like, girl, we are at Black Balsam Knob ascending the rocks. You asking me to bring your stroller out here? No, we're not getting your stroller. This is what it's like for God as the people of Israel move across the desert. My legs are tired, God. I'm hungry. I want something else to eat. I don't like this. This is hard. It's too hot. They're just asking them to be carried. You know, they're wondering, where is the stroller? There's a lot of complaining here. And God's just like me. I start out very patient. You know, I'm like, oh, it's okay, baby. We're going to have a good time. By the end of it, I'm setting things on fire, which is what God did. (laughs) It burned outside of the camp. (laughs) My wife has to be like Moses, John Mark's okay, they're kids, you know, and lets it go. So anyways, the complaining gets specific and the people begin to complain about the miraculous provision of the Lord. The people are in the desert. There is not a lot of resources and there's two and a half million of them. And so God is providing bread for them to eat, bread from heaven, bread from heaven, but they are eating the same food every day for a year. And that does get tough. I'm going to admit that. You know, I've got ADHD, which means I fixate on things. And I'll eat the same meal for about 10 weeks straight every single day and think it's the greatest food on planet Earth. And then one day, I'll go to take a bite, and I can't even stomach the idea of putting it in my mouth. It is now the most repulsive thing on planet Earth to me. I cannot have not even one more ego waffle, you know? And uh, this is what's happening. They've been eating every day for a year. It's bread. It's kind of a sweet bread. They're now grinding the bread down and using it to make a different kind of bread. They're so wanting something different. They're asking God for meat. And they, they're wanting meat. They start dreaming about food. Have you ever been hiking with somebody and you forgot to pack lunch? You know, and all of a sudden somebody starts dreaming about food. They're talking about the pizza they're going to get later. And you're like, I've heard enough of this right now. We don't have anything. They're dreaming about garlic, which I can understand. You know, they're talking about God. Remember when we had the garlic in Egypt when we were slaves, but we had garlic. It was so good. We had cucumbers. They're like, remember we were slaves, but we had cucumbers. We loved all the cucumbers. And, and then they start remembering 
meat and they want the meat. Now they do have 72,000 cattle. I know that because it's in numbers 31, 33. I don't know why they didn't eat the cattle. Maybe it just wasn't enough for two and a half billion people, but they start begging God for cattle. The people are angry. God is moving them towards the promised land. They're complaining. They are angry that they're walking. They want different kinds of food. All the provision and the miracles of God don't line up to their expectations and it is not good enough for them. So they're complaining before God. God sends them quails to eat. But while they're eating the quails, a plague breaks out. God brings justice for their heart condition. Here's the emerging pattern we see. God provides for the people and he cares for the people and he gives his presence to the people. But their sinful nature prevails and the people rebel and they complain and they lose sight of the presence of God. And so he brings judgment upon them. Then after the judgment, he continues to provide for them. He continues to care for them. He continues to give them their pres- his presence. And this is the pattern over and over and over and over again. We see it all throughout the book of Numbers and into the book of Deuteronomy. This pattern of the people rebel and God brings justice. The people rebel and God brings justice. It is crucial for us to understand the justice of God as it appears in the Old Testament. That every time we act in opposition to God, we rebel against God. We reject the provision of God. We reject the guidelines that he gives us every single time. It drives a wedge between us and God that can only be brought closer through the justice of God. The book of Leviticus helps us understand his holiness and why that is. And so this is a pattern throughout the book of Numbers. That's in the second section as the people are moving. Uh, Also in this section is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And it's important that you know that Moses is the author of Numbers. I love that. All right. Uh, I don't have anything to teach about that. I just really like that. I'm the most humble dude on the face of the earth. Ain't nobody more humble than me. All right. Number three, Israel rebels. So we've seen some minor judgments as God teaches the people to take him seriously, but things ratchet up in Numbers chapter 13. The people get to the land of Canaan. They've moved across the desert, two and a half million of them, and they reach the border, which is the Jordan River. And when they get there, Moses calls up 12 spies, one from each tribe, and sends them to scout it out. Uh, This is Numbers 13, verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country. See what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land with you. Now was the time of the season of the first ripe grapes. It was harvesting time. 
God may give us a promise and tell us he's going to give us victory. It is still on us not only to fight the battle, but to prepare for it as well. We see that in the Proverbs, this need for preparation. So Moses is preparing for the battle. He's sending the spies into the land to bring a report back, uh, expecting them to come back and just give him information that he can use to bring a victory for the Lord and bring the people into the promised land. That's not what happens. Down in verse 27, the spies give their report. They've been in there for 40 days and they come back and they tell him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Here's some grapes. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. God has told us that this is our land. It will be our land, says Caleb. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are very, very tall. They're of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim were a weird thing from the book of Genesis where it says that the sons of the, the angels mated with human women and they were giants. I don't know, you guys. The Bible has some crazy stuff in here. And they, they're, they're exaggerating, but they're saying that these people living in this land are so big, they were like the ancient giants we all were told about as children. We looked like grasshoppers to them. To, to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So 10 out of 12 spies come back and say, there is no way we can take the land from these people. What we got to see here is the fact that God calls us to do hard things. It's part of his nature. It's part of what he does, part of who he is. We want life following God to be easy. Maybe we're even led to believe that it would just happen for us, that all the blessings we want, the promises we feel on our lives, the purpose we feel on our lives would be easy if we just follow Jesus. We were told all things are going to work out for good and we're going to be able to do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to get that touchdown on Sunday. And we heard these verses and we translated it to our life is going to be easy if we follow God. That's not the story of the Bible. There was a battle that needed to take place here. There was a war that had to be fought. God had guaranteed the victory, but he did not guarantee it was going to be an easy one. Caleb and Joshua says, we can fight this because God made us a promise. He is with us. It is a fight, but we can win it. But it was not enough to persuade the people. They were terrified. And so they rebel. Numbers chapter 14. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
here's the pattern. God provides, God cares, God gives his presence, and then the people rebel. So God brings justice, and then he provides, and he cares, and he gives grace, he gives mercy, he gives his presence, and then the people rebel, and so God brings justice. That's what we see in the book of Numbers. So the people rebel. This is the fourth section of Numbers. Israel is punished. Chapter 14, verse 30. God speaks in response to the people saying they're going to go back to Egypt and overthrow Moses and not go into this land. God says, not one of you shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. When we move in opposition to the will of God, Oftentimes, it is our children who have to pay the price. But God says, I am going to take the promise and the blessing that I had prepared for you, and I am going to push it onto your children instead. And so the people of Israel turn a two-week journey into a 40-year detour. Could have been the title of somebody's memoir, How I Turned a Two-Week Journey into a 40-Year Detour. God was going to deliver on his promises to these people, but because of their rebellion and sin, they weren't going to get to see it. Their children were going to see it instead. And so the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And there are other moments of rebellion that happened during that time. At one moment, they rebel against God. Again, they try to overthrow Moses and Aaron. And God sends a plague into the people. And Moses and Aaron together intercede on behalf of the people. Moses and Aaron act quickly and say, we're going to put a, a sacrifice together and send it up to God. And he gives it to Aaron. And it says, Aaron stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. What a good leader to intercede on behalf of the people. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 7 we see the moment that Moses joins the rest of his people in rebellion because even Moses wasn't perfect all the time. The Lord says to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water and you will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. But Moses is fed up with the people. They've rebelled, they've complained, they're not happy with anything. So it says, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. And he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And that's where you could see that his heart had gone sideways. Because Moses looked at the people and said, pointing to him and Aaron, must we bring you water out of this rock? But at this moment, there is no we. The provision comes from God. God was going to bring them the water out of that rock. But Moses got his heart in a bad condition. He began to think, look what I've got to do for all of you people. God told him to speak to the rock. 
And it says that Moses raised his, tongue, his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff and water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. In the book of James in the New Testament, it tells us that those who speak on behalf of the Lord will be judged more harshly by the Lord. That there is, a, there is a greater responsibility being given to someone like Moses and Aaron to be able to control themselves and operate on behalf of God. And since they were just as disobedient and rebellious as the people in this moment, and they did not do what God had told them to do, given specific instructions to do, God brought judgment on Moses as well. And now Moses is never going to be able to walk into the promised land. So it was Moses' role to intercede on behalf of these people and be obedient to God, but he lost his grace for the people and disobeyed God, so there is justice. That is the pattern of numbers. There is, there is rebellion, there is justice, there is grace, there is God's presence, there is rebellion, there is justice, there is grace, there is God's presence. This is the moment where Numbers stops and Deuteronomy begins. Uh, Deuteronomy is this incredible book filled with rich interpretation and some important movement in the story. But as we observe the Bible from 30,000 feet, we can move through it quickly because it's another book of law, repeating laws already laid out in Leviticus. Deuteronomy is called the book of remembrance, the book of remembrance. And it exists for a specific reason. The time it was written, it was written by Moses as well, but it was written 40 years after the book of Numbers. Why 40 years? Because the people of Israel are wandering in the desert for 40 years and they all die off and now their children are grown and getting ready to enter into the promised land. And before they enter the promised land, Moses communicates to the people of Israel who they are, why they are here, what God has called them to, how they should approach the Lord, the way they can be made holy enough to get in his presence and then what God has promised to do for them. Moses gives three speeches and then the last couple chapters of Deuteronomy are most likely written by Joshua, which is who takes over in the next book, the book of Joshua. Deuteronomy is a book of remembrance. It has three speeches. The first one is a review. Uh, chapters one through three remind them of what God has done so far. It's the same thing I do at the beginning of the message where I tell you what I did the last couple weeks. It is a review. And then the, the next speech begins in chapter 4, goes all the way to chapter 26, and it is regulations for the present. Regulations for the present. It's a review of the past and then regulations for the present. It is a recap of the Levitical laws. In Deuteronomy, you get some greater exposition of all 10 of the Ten Commandments. So it's a great book to read through and understand a little bit more about the Ten Commandments in some greater detail. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses sums up the law in this passage. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's 6-4, and that is called the Shema. It is a Jewish prayer that's uttered twice a day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is a ritual prayer. And then it goes from there into chapter or verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
This is the passage Jesus quotes when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he pairs it with Leviticus 19, 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Moses also explains the tithe in this portion in a way that I think helps us understand it well today. He says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your field's produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. One of the great things in Deuteronomy is that Moses often provides an understanding or a reason along with a law. And so that's what he does at the end. He says, so that you may revere the Lord your God always. I like the way that this paraphrase translation says it. It says, you must tithe all of your crops every year. Bring this tithe to eat before the Lord your God at the place he shall choose as his sanctuary. And this applies to your tithes of grain and wine and olive oil, the first board of your flocks and herds. And the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. Moses explains, here's why we give back, so that we understand that our provision comes from God. The third speech is readings for the future. Readings for the future. Chapters 27 through 31 is Moses making his final speech and aware that he is at the end of his life. He is 120 years old at this point. And so, yes, God didn't let him enter the promised land, but my guy was 120 years old. He's lived unnaturally long, even for this time period. And he's making sure at this point that the next generation is ready to carry the story of God, the will of God, the presence of God into this next generation. He gives them blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. He reminds them of the holiness and the justice of God, but he also reminds them of the grace and the goodness of God. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 is an example. It says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, so that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is a good blessing that he gives to the people. The rest of Deuteronomy sets up what happens next. Joshua, son of Nun, who's one of the spies uh, who said, let's go, let's do this, we can take this territory. He has been Moses' right-hand man for the last 40 years as they're wandering in the wilderness. And he's named as the successor and leader over the people. Moses blesses him. It says, Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you must go with these people into the land the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. That's a blessing I'd like on my life. The Lord takes Moses up Mount Nebo, not Nebo, North Carolina, the original Mount Nebo, and from Mount Nebo, Moses gets this beautiful view of the promised land. And God allows him to see it with his eyes from the mountain. And there on Mount Nebo, Moses dies. That's the end of Deuteronomy. And that's what leads us into the book 
of Joshua. So here's three quick things from Numbers and Deuteronomy. First thing that we can learn from these books is that we have to trust God. We have to trust in him. The biggest narrative event in Numbers is the people of Israel approaching the promised land only to decide that they can't take it. At this point, for 600 years, God's people were constantly reciting and remembering the covenant that God gave Abraham that he would give them this land, that this territory would be theirs. They knew that God had promised it to them. And yet, when they saw how difficult it was going to be to take it, they said, let's go back to Egypt. God is going to call you to do things that are big that are nearly impossible. He's going to set a path in front of you that leads you to the purpose you were created with, but it will never be an easy and clear path. He's equipped you to be able to fight these battles. He's given you the tools you need, the hope that you need, the people that you need to get through the challenges that he knows are in front of you. It's easy to give up and decide to go another way, but you gotta trust God. If he's called you to it, he's going to see you through it. Second thing is this. Disobedience has consequences. When you get to it, you read through numbers and you see all these consequences. It's rough. Maybe these were the kinds of things that hung you up on who God is as you've tried to understand him. Or as a child, you heard these stories and the ground's opening up and it's swallowing people and there's, there's plagues and there's fires and God seems a little bit harsh in this time, but disobedience has consequences. God gave the people clear guidelines on how to live and what to do. He gave them every reason to trust in him. He miraculously provided for them again and again and again but they still chose rebellion and disobedience. And this is the pattern that appears through scripture. Disobedience leads to consequences. God is just and he always delivers justice. Maybe it's exasperating to you to see this because goodness, I complain a lot. I'm, I'm known to be a bit of a complainer from time to time. It's hard for me to always feel grateful for the blessings of God when it feels like the world around me is challenging me, pushing against me, falling apart around me. It's hard for me to always have an attitude of gratitude to be grateful to the Lord, to worship Him at all times. It's tough. And I can relate with these people a little bit. And I don't want to fall through a crack in the earth or receive a plague. But you've got to remember, as you read through a book like Numbers, to interpret it in the lens of all of Scripture. Because here's the thing. Disobedience does get consequences. We see that. That is clear. And understanding that is crucial for you to understand why we needed Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross because God's justice is absolute. And whatever he says is the final word. And there are always consequences for disobedience. And it is so hard for all of us to get it right. We're rebellious in nature. And we're always going to have moments where we make the wrong decisions. And God knew that. And that is why he was constantly bringing grace and doing everything that he could to bring relationship to the people. But ultimately, even in numbers, God is building this this story up in preparation, knowing that he is bringing one who would make it possible for all of his justice to be satisfied in one moment. 
that all of us would not have to suffer, that we wouldn't have to try and do our best to get it right all the time because God, he saw our nature and he knew how hard it was. And so Jesus became the sacrifice that made a way for us to receive God's blessing despite our disobedience. Doesn't mean that we should keep on just doing whatever we want all the time. We should practice the way of Jesus and do everything we can to follow him and to live in a way of holiness as we pursue God. But we are going to get it wrong. And when we do, God's justice and the consequences of our sin are laid upon Christ instead of upon you. The last thing is that God blesses obedience. And he still does this today. When you live in his will, he gives you blessing that is beyond anything you could imagine. These books both affirm that when we trust in God and follow him and let him lead us in this life, he brings blessing deep down into our souls. Joshua is one of the only people we see operating in obedience in the two and a half million people living. He says, God is going to let us take this territory. He is going to provide for us. Let us prepare our army and go in and take it. And the people don't listen to him. But God honors his obedience with this blessing. Moses asks God to bless Joshua. And he uses those incredible words. And when Joshua takes over in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, God repeats the blessing that Moses asked for Joshua. He gives it to him. He says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Joshua's obedience brings this incredible blessing. Our obedience brings blessing from the generous God that we serve. When we serve the purpose he's given us, when we live the way that he showed us to live, you will have greater satisfaction, greater peace, greater joy, greater happiness than you could have ever even imagined in any other way of living. Because obedience brings his blessings. Maybe you're here today and it's, it's just been a struggle to, you, you, want, you want to live in a way that has meaning. You want to do something in this life that matters, but it's, it's hard to know what that is, and it's hard to get it right all the time. And maybe you just need to be released from that today to know that God has, he has been patient and kind all of this time preparing the way for Jesus so that you could enter into a relationship with him today, be forgiven for every mistake you've ever made, every time you've deviated from what he's created you to do. And you can find a better way of living that is going to lead to greater blessing in your life. If you're in here today and you're ready to enter into a relationship with Jesus and pursue this obedience to God that's going to lead to the kind of satisfaction you've been searching for. It just starts with a prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin, for trying to do it on my own, for trying to get it right on my own. Forgive me. I believe in you. I need you. But I ask today, God, that you would just use me however you see fit. All that I am from this moment on, I am yours and I will serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.